0: I think we need to significantly downsize a lot of what we're doing. We cannot just be replacing every single internal combustion engine in Europe with an electric vehicle.
1: Meet Tara Connolly. You may have seen her Twitter account on climate activism. This is Net Zero, a podcast by the Florence School of Regulation about the energy transition and climate change. I am Joanna Freitas And in this series, I'm inviting myself into the minds of some truly insightful people with very different perspectives. We will be discussing what is happening across Europe, what are the challenges for utilities, what will be the benefits for the environment and ultimately for citizens. Today, we are joined by Tara Connolly, EU Climate and Energy Policy Director at Greenpeace, to discuss what is the real impact of the energy transition on the environment. Tara, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So there is a big drive today in Europe to abandon fossil fuels and move to renewables and power generation, but electricity and heat production only account for about 25% of overall greenhouse emissions. What is your view on the intense focus that national and European policy has been putting on power generation alone to fight climate change? So
0: I would agree that there is a large focus on power generation. That's definitely true. Um I think there are some policies on the heating and cooling and transport sector, but it's definitely true that there's a very strong focus on the power sector. And of course, you know, transport is um, the one of the main sectors that's increasing so that um, the evidence of that being the case is, is clear for everyone to see. Um I think it's. You know, the power sector could be seen to be relatively easier to decarbonize in that you're swapping one technology in, for out, in out for another. I think that we have the large companies there that are able to do the investments and um, the utilities, but. You know, Greenpeace and NGOs would also um, be keen to see much smaller types of investments as well. We're not asking people so much about behavioural change when we're talking about switching from fossil fuels. To, well, not yet anyway, switching from fossil fuels to renewables. And I think that um, it is widely accepted that uh, electrification of the other sectors is a large part of the solution. So decarbonizing the power sector is absolutely key. But it's true that there needs to be far more attention paid to the heating and cooling and transport sectors. And that's something we hope that the new commission will do.
1: And do you think that um, these other sectors like transportation, for for one that you mentioned, but also industry, buildings and agriculture, can they go to near zero emissions and how?
0: Um, They have to. They absolutely, they have to. Um, We're talking about a very serious situation in which we have twin um, crises of climate change and and biodiversity. Um, Scientists are saying that the permafrost is melting 70 years before they um, expected it to. Um, Their forest, the Arctic is on fire for the second summer in a row. There are huge, huge consequences to to these um, sectors not um, decarbonizing. I think that they all can play a role. The policies that the European union are um, pursuing are obviously not enough, not going far enough. But I think in for the most part, it's clear that the technologies are there. It's about putting in place the policies that will support and accelerate their deployment. So in transport, um, we're having to really think about how we um, move away from obviously the internal combustion engine um, for all modes of transport and In other areas like buildings, it's about massive efficiency in in transport as well, of course. Um, These technologies exist in the industrial sector. I I think it will be a bit more challenging. Um, And in agriculture, we really, really need to move away from the type of agriculture, intensive industrial agriculture in Europe that is contributing to both crises. We need to move to a type of agriculture that is, first of all, plant-based. We cannot be um, consuming the same amounts of meat and dairy that we that we are. Greenpeace says that globally we have to cut meat and dairy consumption by 50%. And not only are the animals themselves contributing to um, climate change, but they're also contributing doubly through deforestation outside Europe when we are importing grains to, to feed them. So it's especially perverse. And if we're going to be asking our ecosystems to become sort of carbon sinks, we cannot keep putting them under so much pressure and then demand that they sort of act as a carbon sink if the, the mass doesn't add up there.
1: If we go back to the power sector for a moment, um, a world with more renewables will also probably be a world with mass deployment of lithium iron batteries and increased mining of cobalt. There is even talk now of drilling the seabed for cobalt reserves, which in turn raises other environmental concerns. Will the environment be better off with the energy transition or are we just changing the types of aggressions we impose on the planet?
0: I think that's a very good question. Um, I think the energy transition has to be seen in the context of the broader uh, transition that has to happen in all sectors, as we just discussed. It's also um, a social transition and um, we have to bear all of that in mind. I think anyone coming at this thinking that we can maintain existing economic model and, and get to the Paris Agreement, I think is, is very much mistaken. And um, I think we need to significantly downsize a lot of what we're doing. We cannot just be replacing every single internal combustion engine in Europe with an electric vehicle. We cannot be replacing every single airplane with a sort of an electric airplane or filling them with biofuels. That is not which is another, you know, large, um, perverse impact that the that, that European uh, energy transition has had. You know, about the, the rare earth elements, um, I think what's interesting to note is that they're, they're not actually that rare. <laughs> they're, and they are, every, they are everywhere, um, but they're very hard to extract. And we're talking about um, a mining that has a significant environmental impact. There are places that manage to um, extract these um, elements that manage to comply with all local social and um, environmental legislation. There is um, a mine in, in Brazil that does it. Um, the issue there is one of cost. So I think the question for Europe is, what is the cost we're willing to pay? Or rather, what is the cost we're willing to inflict on other, on other people? You know, Europe um, recently um, passed a law to ban the importation of illegal timber um, maybe we should be doing that with everything else. Um, why are we allowing the importation of illegally extracted um, rare earth elements? I think that needs to be absolutely um, the, the standard. We need to be making sure that the standards in these mines are as as high as possible. We also need to, I think, be looking into alternatives. Um, you know, wind turbines are moving away from using these rare earth elements. There are companies that are using less in their motors. So Toyota uses less in its motors, you know, using carbon fiber, lightens the weight of the car and, you know, helps minimize the size of the battery. I think all of those need to be looked into and accelerated and are really important. But I think the main strategy has to be understanding and accepting that we are not, we cannot keep the same uh, um, system that we have going and just replace it because this is inevitably what's going to happen in more and more perverse ways.
1: You touched on uh, transportation and air travel in particular and uh, an interesting fact is that according to the European Commission, the top 10 CO2 emitters in 2018 were nine coal-fired power plants in Germany and Poland and Ryanair. How can we promote decarbonisation of the transport sector while preserving the affordability for final consumers, do you think that Europeans will be ready to abandon instant traveling as a cheap commodity to ensure emissions reduction? Yeah, so I think that that was very shocking to see that it wasn't
0: no longer just the power sector that was the, the big culprits. It was the Ryanair. I think that um, travel is not as cheap as we think it is. Those those cheap Ryanair tickets are not as cheap as they think they are. If you're flying into a small regional airport, the local government is paying part of your ticket. That air company is not paying its taxes. There is no tax on kerosene fuel. You're not paying VAT on your airplane ticket, um, whereas you are if you buy a bus ticket, a train ticket, or any other form of transportation. So I think the idea that the current system is somehow cheap is not true. It's it's grossly subsidized. Um, and I think that um, bringing that out and correcting that will go a large way to correcting a lot of the the, the, the transport patterns that we're seeing. Um, again, like I said before, I don't think we can keep and honestly, the same levels of um, behavior that we've seen in the past, you know, similarly to cutting down on meat and dairy consumption. I think we do need to cut down on on on, on sort of this yeah idea that we will fly to Paris for dinner and a night and fly back again. I think that that. Has been actually a very very short part of human existence for a very small number of people i mean most people in this world have never gotten on an airplane i think that's also something to remember but i think that the solutions are perhaps even more wonderful than than what we have now i mean they're. You know, night trains—they're they're calling it the Greta effect. A lot of train companies are promising to bring back night trains. You know, Europe's rail network is much smaller than it was back in the previous century. Even you know, we can go back and to the way that we were before. And um, I think it's it's important to remember that road transport is uh, still the the lion's share of Europe's um, transport emissions. And so, addressing that, um, addressing. Um, you know sort of how we plan our cities how we run our cities taking the cars out of our city centers is extremely important moving freight off our roads onto onto um, onto our waterways is really important um and you know we will be the better for it i mean in ireland the epa just recommended that parents lift young children above exhaust pipe level to avoid them um, being impacted by exhaust fumes this is you know, I think it's really going to be like the cigarette ban, which we have in Ireland and many other countries. We're going to wonder why we lived that way with, you know, these huge tons of metal hurtling through our, uh, our cities, um, polluting the air and polluting the air that our children breathe. Um, and we'll wonder how we ever lived like that. And we'll never want to go back. I mean, that's one area, city-based transport, in which we have You know, we need to promote active travel. We need to promote cycling, walking and public transport needs massive investment. You know, other parts of the transport uh, system will need different solutions. But um, I think, again, a lot of the solutions are there. It's about implementing them and putting in place the right policies.
1: Uh, Let's talk about carbon capture for a moment. What role do you think carbon capture will play in reaching CO2 reduction targets? And when do you believe this will become material?
0: So... I mean, CCS is, is not delivering. It's not delivering. Um, there have been billions of euros spent in, in subsidizing this technology, um, and it has yet to see any real, um, real, real promise in, in Greenpeace's view. Um, I think the time question is also becoming even more pertinent. So scientists are saying we have, uh, you know, ten or you know, ten years left now to really have global emissions. Is CCS going to be to be ready there to deliver in greenpeaces view it's it, it that's it's not going to deliver in time so when you ask for a certain date I, I you know we don't we don't we can't give one we don't see one and um, I think the other point about CCS is it's very much an end of pipe solution so you're maintaining the existing system and you're whacking a CCS unit onto the end that it does absolutely nothing for example for gas for its um the mining impacts also for coal and uh, for methane leakages you know it, it really does very very little to address those kind of solutions and we don't see it playing any significant role soon.
1: And now to end our interview, I would like to ask you some rapid fire questions that you can answer with one or two words or take a wild guess. Zero carbon Europe by 2050, myth or reality?
0: I hope by 2040.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The future of storage, batteries or power to gas? Both, but they need to
0: be sustainable.
1: What year will see the last internal combustion engine vehicle sold in Europe? 2028. What will the percentage of power generated by prosumers be in 2050? It could be almost half. The main challenge for utilities in the next decade is keeping up with the transition and making it fast and fair. And our final question Do you believe that the Paris Agreement goal? of keeping the increase in global average temperature to well below two degrees above pre-industrial levels will be attained, and if yes, by what date?
0: For the sake of super future generations, I, I hope we keep it to 1.5, not just well below. By what date, I don't know.
1: Tara, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Next time on Net Zero. So TSO and DSO add does not the needs, but the responsibility to cooperate in order to rethink the energy system. Thank you for listening to this episode of Net Zero. If you like us, you can subscribe to our Florence School of Regulation podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud and sign up to our newsletter.